Well, I was in the fourth grade, but I remember it so clearly. Certain books really stick with you. In the fourth grade, I remember our teacher, this was a read aloud. This is where she would gather us together and she read for us a book by a Kentucky author, of course. It's called A Penny's Worth of Character by Jesse Stewart. Anybody, A Penny's Worth of Character? Oh, if you haven't read it, it's so, so good. Read it, find it, read it with your kids. The story is about a little boy named Shan who grew up in Appalachia during the Depression. And uh, Shan gets this one special job he gets to do. It's a very special treat. Now think, remember, this is, this is the, the depression. He got the job of carrying back paper sacks. These sacks would go back to the, gross, to the grocer and uh, old, uh, 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 old Mr. Conley, and he would pay a penny per sack, right? And so... Um, uh, on days where his mom would have collected five sacks, he could take back five sacks, and with a whole nickel, with five pennies, he could buy a chocolate bar. Uh, it's, remember, it's inflation, right? Okay, so he gets this chocolate bar. And then, and then, on days when he could bring back ten sacks, if he could get enough, uh, one nickel for the chocolate bar and another nickel for, you ready, a lemon soda pop. And on days when you could have, so five each, on, on days when you could have 10 total pennies, he could have what was transcendent for him, a day where he could have his favorite treat of all, both a chocolate bar and a lemon soda pop. And it looked like it was going to be close. His, he, he knew his mom had been saving these sacks. And uh, could this be one of those once-in-a-lifetime dream-come-true moments? He looked, and it was enough. And it turns out his mom says there are 10 sacks. However... Uh, you mustn't take back one of them. One of them has a hole in it. And so it would, of course, be dishonest, right? It would be lying. It would be stealing to take back the sack with a hole in it. And so it's a nine-penny day. And uh, Shan hears his mom's instructions. He goes out to where the sacks are kept. And uh, he grabs all ten, you know, just in case, right? And carries them to Mr. Conley. And, uh, of course, Jesse Stewart, uh, good authors do this where they show, they don't tell. And on the way to the store, he, he delights in the world of nature in morning glories and buttercups, in red-headed wood, woodpeckers and in crawdads. He carries the sack, it carries them all in there. And, he, and he, at the last minute, he takes, that, he takes that sack with a hole in it and he, and he puts it kind of in the middle of the deck and then presents them to Mr. Conley. And every fourth grader's reading this, like, what's going to happen? Mr. Conley inspects these sacks, you know, starting from the top. First one, second one, we're all like, right? And then, when he, and then he decides to go from the bottom, and he counts a few. And then he figures, well, you're an honest kid. I assume there's all ten good quality sacks here. All is in order. And he gives them the ten pennies. Gets away with it. And then he takes that money and he buys his favorite treat of all, the chocolate bar and the lemon soda pop. And he begins to drink it. And to his horror, he discovers something's, something's changed inside of him. And the chocolate doesn't taste as sweet. And the lemon soda pop doesn't taste as refreshing and good. And something's not only changed in him, something's changed in his relationships. Mr. Conley, who he loves dearly now, he, his relationships are marked by fear and suspicion. And even something has changed between him and nature itself. The walk back home from that grocery store, it's no longer in all of, of, of nature's uh, glorious splendor. Instead, it's dark and somehow gray as he's walking back. Now, I won't tell you how the story ends, 
But every fourth grader on the globe understands exactly what Shan felt. I'm talking about every fourth grader on the globe. Everybody, I believe that even a little child, they hear that story, and adults hear it, and of course we know, listen, even a little child, they know more about the doctrine of the fall of man than they think they do. They may have never heard the name Adam or Eve. They may have never heard about the serpent or something called Garden of Eden, and yet every single fourth grader on the globe can understand exactly what Shan felt and why, can't they? So can you goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden that when we disobey God, when we sin, it's like, well, it looks like we got away with it and yet there's been a fracture. Something has changed between ourselves. Something has changed between our relationships. Even between us and, and somehow the created order, it's changed. You say, well, well Tom, what about, what about people who don't know, what about people who don't even, they don't even know the Bible? I mean, can we really still talk about sin and evil? And Yes, even people who don't know the Bible. The Bible actually talks about what about those people who've never even read a Bible? Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. They, they show, they meaning these Gentiles that have never even seen the scriptures, they show the work of the law is written where? On their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In other words, a, a, a guilty conscience even for somebody who would say, well, I've never read the scriptures or I didn't grow up with these stories. We understand there's right and there's wrong. And the idea here is that when we sin, something is fractured inside of us. Adam and Eve lived in paradise where there was no separation between God and man. No guilt, no shame because there had been no sin. And after the fall, after that great act of rebellion and disobedience and all of us like Adam and Eve have have fallen in the sense that we've chosen our own way instead of God's way. There's guilt, there's shame. And it becomes a theme throughout all literature, uh, whether it's Shan in A Penny's Worth of Character, or whether it's Raskolnikov in uh, Crime and Punishment, commits this murder and the whole novel is about how he's gotten away with it, and yet it's eating at him the whole time, ultimately leading to his destruction because what he can't shake is his conscience. What about, uh, what about uh, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth? Right after uh, in Shakespeare's Macbeth, when uh, Lady Macbeth thinks she's she's killed Duncan and now gotten away with it, and yet what's the problem? She can't, she 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 loses her mind over this sense that something's been fractured, something's wrong. The lesson from all of literature, she's she's wondering how can she wash her hands clean of this blood guilt. There is this sense that even if you think you've gotten away with sin, guilt finds you out. Have you ever been there? Is it possible that you're here today and you're like that? You're saying, what do I do with a guilty conscience? The guilt doesn't go away like I thought it would. What, what, what do I do with guilt? Listen, if you're here today, if you've been there, or if you're here right now, and that's a question in your heart, what do I do with a guilty conscience? What, what can be done with a guilty conscience, you need this word from Matthew today. You need to hear a word from God. Because there's absolutely an answer for you. And Matthew gives us three portraits here. Will you turn to Matthew chapter 27? Matthew gives us here portraits of what to do with a guilty conscience. Where do we go with guilt? Where do we turn? That's our theme today. Three portraits of guilt and innocence as we come now to the fateful moment. We'll be in Matthew 27. Let me catch you up. 
We come now to the crucifixion of Jesus. Judas has arrived with a great crowd and betrayed his friend with a kiss. That's late Thursday night. Then Jesus was brought into a mockery of a trial. It's a travesty of justice. The trial was illegal. By their own standards, the trial was illegal. It was illegal to try them at night. They couldn't agree on on the, the, the testimony. It was all made up. It even says they looked for false witnesses. They just need one charge to stick. They've got it in their head. Jesus must be killed. They know he's innocent, and there's that... You know, there's that little hurdle to get over how we're going to get this innocent man killed. But in the end, they, they, they go with two charges in this trial. They try to get him on two charges. The first was ter- terrorism. They basically try him as a terrorist. And their, their grounds for that are, this guy said he was going to blow up the temple. Where, now, where'd they get that? His prophecy that this temple is going to be destroyed, right? Destroy this temple and it'll be rebuilt in three days. He was talking about himself, but they trump up this charge. See, sedition. He is, uh, he's looking to uh, do this uh, terrorist plot where he's going to blow up the temple. So it's a ridiculous charge, but that's the first one. The second one they go with is a little more complicated because ironically, well, the second charge they go with is blasphemy. He claims to be the king. He claims to be Messiah, son of God. Well, that charge of blasphemy only works if he's not, in fact, Messiah, son of God. But because he is Messiah, son of God, then that charge is also equally ridiculous. Anyway, they they think they can get Pilate to and maybe enforce one of these. Matthew then tells the story of Peter denying him. Remember Peter, the one who said, even if all these other disciples fall away, I'll never deny you. And then does exactly that. Chapter 27 begins ominously. Look at verse 1. When morning came... After this dreadful, illegal nighttime trial, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Notice that. They're not, they're not looking to get the truth. They're not looking for any sort of justice. No, they've, they've, got, they've already got their verdict figured out in their mind to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Uh, now, what's the deal with this? Rem- uh, so we don't have anything really like this that I can think of in, in, in modern America. Um, imagine you are, a, you are a country, Israel, that is governed by an empire, Rome. And so Rome allows you uh, to, to govern some affairs of state, but one of the authorities that is taken away from you and only reserved for Rome is the authority to execute capital punishment. They could try somebody, but they couldn't, they couldn't kill them if their uh, laws led to that verdict. Rome had to do that. So they have to trump up the charges, then they have to turn them over to Rome, that's Governor Pilate, to say, okay, see, we we find him guilty, now you uh, carry out capital punishment. Anyway, Matthew will return to the chief priest and to Pilate, but first, he zooms in and says, meanwhile, let's see what's happening with Judas. So we check in on Judas. It's terrible. Verse three, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw, so he sees all this, he sees what's gonna happen. When he saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. This, this, this changed mind, this carries the idea of remorse. In fact, if you look at the NIV, how they render this, they, they, they actually use the word uh, remorse. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. You got the idea there. Uh, what's going on? Remember, he had, been, he had, been, he had taken the, the 30 pieces of silver that they had used to, to betray him, and now he, he, he's trying to give it back, seized with remorse. What's going on here? 
Well, we don't know. I mean, Matthew does not do a deep dive into the psychology of Judas. Maybe he, 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 was trying to get, he was trying to do something to make Jesus fight. Stand up for yourself, Jesus. Be a, be a worldly Messiah. Be a military kind of leader. And he, and he wouldn't do it. And, he, and when he realizes this is going to lead to his friend's crucifixion, maybe he tries to undo it. I, I don't know. But, but you wonder, what did he think would happen when he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver? E- either way, something made him sick over what he had done. He feels sorry and guilty about what he did. But, look, but watch this. But, but, but he didn't know where to go with his guilt. This is our first portrait of, of the three, of where to go with your guilt. Judas did not know where to go with his guilt. Let me ask you, do you? He felt like he had to do something about this. So, so, so he returned the money. He desperately tried to make amends, you know. Make, what do, what, do, what do you call it when you try to make right with something that has separated you and God? He's trying to make atonement. And he even says the right words. Look at verse 4. Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Look at verse 4. Saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. It's almost too painful to read. He, he knows he's got to go somewhere with his guilt, with his anguish. But instead of going to Jesus, he goes to the only place he can think of. Since he was a little boy, what's the one place he, he knew of you could go to offer atonement? And it's the old temple system. He was told, even as a little boy, if, if you go there, if you've really messed up, if you really made a mistake, if you go to there and you offer the right sacrifice, the priest there will help you. They'll help you figure out how to make atonement. Sacrifice could be made there. And so he doesn't think, go to Jesus. He doesn't, he's not been listening to what Jesus has been saying. Instead, he goes to this old, broken-down temple system, and he goes there to make his offering. And what happens? What, what do the high priest say when he gets to the temple? What do they say to him? He goes back, I've, I've sinned, I've, be, I've betrayed innocent blood. He's absolutely right. Jesus is innocent. And he did sell him out. So when he tries to give the money back, what do the high priest say? <laughs> Sorry, man, not our problem. They said, what, what is that to us? <laughs> See to it yourself. See to it yourself, as in this is, this is, this is not our problem. Sorry, man, you're on your own. Can you imagine? When the high priest say, what is that to us? You're saying, what are you talking about? You're literally, you're the priest of the temple. It's literally your job to help remorseful sinners make atonement for sin. How could you say, what is that to us? You know, the whole Old Testament says that the people of God are supposed to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God, Micah 6, 8. You would think the priests here would do justly and love mercy. They don't love mercy. They hate mercy. They offer no mercy. This is what it looks like, a religious system so devoid of anything that looks like the love of God. It's completely empty of any mercy. And when they ask, that's an incredible question. What is that to us? Here's a man saying, i, I got to give this back. I've, I, I, I've taken innocent blood. What is that to us? You want to cry out, what do you mean, what is that to you? It's everything in the world. You're the chief priest. You can reconvene the Sanhedrin. You can call a mistrial on Jesus. You can retry him. You can, you can say to Judas, you know, testify that you were wrong and, and allow Judas into the temple to make atonement for sin. So with nowhere to go, he, the, 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 the priest won't help him. He feels like no one... He has no hope, so with nowhere to go with his guilt, you know the rest. Verse 5, and throwing down the pieces of silver, as in if they won't take it, he just throws down the piece of silver into the temple. He departed, and he went and hanged himself. He does not take his sin to the Lord, so he takes it upon himself. 
in a vain attempt to atone for his sin and remove his guilt. See, he knows the law. To betray innocent blood puts you under the curse of the law. That's a sin. That's Deuteronomy 27, 25. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. That's the verse. You can read it in Deuteronomy. And right after that, all the people said amen. All the people said amen. In other words, everyone agreed to the law. Everybody knew it. And he feels like, well, I'm under that curse, so maybe the priests will help, but they don't. No one can help. Dan Doriani says, Judas took his life in an anguished attempt to atone for that guilt. So, so, so one portrait Matthew is painting for us is, where do you go with your guilt? Judas would say, there's nowhere to go with guilt. You must bear it yourself. The lesson is vital. Judas feels terrible. Listen to me. Judas feels terrible, but because he does not take his sin to the Lord, he's forced to take it upon himself. Do you hear me? Because he won't take his sin to the Lord, he's forced to take it upon himself. It is a tragic extreme case of man-made religion, a desperate attempt to save oneself instead of going to Jesus. Douglas O'Donnell is helpful, and he calls what Judas did, because Judas is such a, so, so uh, uh, complicated for a lot of people. What he did, you might say, is half repentance. It's the tragedy of half repentance. He got repentance half right, the, the, the old repentance train analogy may help. Perhaps you've heard this one. Repentance is a Bible word that means to turn from sin and turn toward Christ. Turn from your sin and turn toward Christ. To use the train analogy, if you've ever lived in a city with trains, right, they move in opposite directions. For example, in New York, you've got the uptown train, and across the tracks, or across the platform, is the downtown train. They literally move in opposite directions. Uh, 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 Doug O'Donnell says, think about what Judas did. He's on the, if you're you're in sin, half of repentance is, he did right. I've shed innocent blood. He admits the innocence of Jesus. He gets off the downtown train, right? He gets off that. He's saying, I I don't want to do that anymore. But he fails to get on the Jesus-bound train. It's like he got repentance half right. It's the tragedy of half repentance. To use his words, the right way was back to Jesus for forgiveness. Instead, he went to the chief priest in the temple, but not the true high priest who is the temple. Judas should have gone to Jesus, who is sympathetic. He would have received him, forgiven him. He should have run to the tree of Calvary for life. Instead, he ran to another tree for death. Now, to those of you who might say, well, what was Judas supposed to do? I mean, the writing was on the wall. The crucifixion was about to happen. He probably couldn't have made it to Jesus in time. Oh, friend, have you forgotten about Easter Sunday morning? He could have made it. See, Jesus back from the dead. And, and, and why do we know this? The example here. Like, like, let's acknowledge what Judas did right, acknowledge our sins, seek to confess it. But what he did wrong is we are not to despair over our sin. And if anybody here is walking under guilt and condemnation, don't despair of your sin, fully repent of it. You say, Tom, do you have any picture of what that looks like? Yes, that's why Matthew put Judas and Peter right next to each other in his telling. If Judas is how to do it wrong, Peter is how to do repentance right. Think about it. There's all these parallels Matthew puts between Peter and Judas. Their stories of betrayal are told side by side. They are equally condemnable. The main difference is what? What did they do after their great sins? And that's why I think, I think Paul had in mind the story of Peter and Judas when he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He was thinking of repentance, and he was talking about the two types of grief and what happens 
In 2 Corinthians 7, 10, I think, I think Paul has in mind Judas and Peter. Look, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And that's Peter being restored after the resurrection. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Peter is restored by Jesus in his mercy. Whereas worldly grief produces death. This is dark as it gets. For Judas, his sin, his guilt made him keenly aware of the separation between him and God. And the separation remains. So that's the first portrait. If you're a note taker, where can I go with guilt? Well, here's, where, here's what not to do, what Judas did, and that's to bear it yourself. To say, no, 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 I, I can bear this guilt myself. You cannot. It crushed Judas. Well, there's another place. There's another place that people go, and it's told in this next portrait. Another place of where people try to go to deal with their guilt. And that is to, um, to cover it up, you know, with enough good deeds. Right? It's like, I've done this bad stuff. But I'm going to do all these good things, and in this way, I'll like make up for the bad stuff. A lot of people who should know better have in their mind that it's a sort of scales, you know, those old-timey scales, where, yeah, there's this bad deed over here, but if I really hammer down on the good stuff, then that'll, like, you know, atone for it. That'll, that'll make up for it. Does it? Go back to Lady Macbeth. What does she say? She starts to hallucinate, and she thinks she can smell the blood of Duncan on her hands. She's covered in this guilt. And what does she say? Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. What's she saying? Dumping enough good stuff on this guilt is not going to make it go away. Burying it with good deeds is not going to make it go away. And let me tell you, a lot of man-made religious systems are built on this premise. And let me lean in a little bit. I know a lot of Christians who should know better who still live a little bit like this. Hey, what do you do with that guilt? Well, that was a long time ago, and I've done better since. Okay, so, so you're saved by justification by time? Is that what saves you? As long as enough time passes? Well, no. Oh, okay, well, well then, yeah, but I've, I've really done, I've really, I'm, are you good with God right now? Yeah, why? Man, I'm really, I've really been good for the last 72 hours. <laughs> I call it justification by 72 hours. The 72-hour rule. Basically, if I say, how are you with God, your mind goes back to the last two or three days, and you go, yeah, I don't think I have any major sins going on for the last two or three days, so I think I'm good. So you're saved by your behavior over the last 72 hours. Now, we laugh at that, but we know there's a little bit of truth there, that we're, we're operating off justification and covering up with guilt because we've done enough good deeds. That's, notice, that's what the chief priests, that's their way of dealing. Look, they know they're innocent. This next verse is absolutely unbelievable. Unreal. The, the propensity for humans to be able to excuse their sinfulness is limitless. I know, I am a, a human. Uh, verse 6, but the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, quote, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. You guys ever been there? Somebody hires you for an assassination. They pay you, and then you're like, do I put it in the offering? Right? Right, you know, I better give this online. Like, do you, what planet does this make sense in, right? Judas is going, I take it back. They're like, no, we can't take it back. It's blood money. So he throws it on the ground. And what do they do? We can't take this. We can't take this. As they take the pieces of silver. Y'all, we cannot take this. Get that? Yep, yep. Get it all. Do we get all 30? Yeah, we can't take it. As they take it. And then do what? Well, I feel funny putting it in the church offering. I know. Why? Because it's blood money. 
That sentence proves they are completely complicit in guilt. They are eyes wide open guilty. Why? That proves it. If they had spent 30 pieces of silver as part of a trial to pin somebody who needed to be brought to justice, right? Then that's just, a, that's just an expense. They would be proud to pay it. In fact, if they could pay all that and then get it back, they would absolutely put it in God's offering and they'd ring a big bell when they did it. We not only brought this evil person to justice, we are proud to donate this money back to God. We didn't have to spend a dime of God's money to do it because he needed to be brought to justice. But they don't do that. They're not proud of themselves. Why? They know it's blood money. They know it's crooked. This proves they're complicit in the guilt. They, 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 they know it. They can't even bring themselves. And, and like... You think, how do we get so, why does it get so complicated? The simple gospel good news gets so complicated. Even today, there's a spirit of this, well, like, 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 like uh, what is it, missing the forest for the trees? So you guys will effectively murder someone, but heaven forbid you break your uh, legalistic religious rituals. No wonder Jesus, do you remember when he told the Pharisees? You guys, you will strain out, you will strain out a gnat and swallow the whole camel. You absolutely miss the point of God's heart and God's love. So what do they do? They have a committee meeting. They do, verse seven, so they took counsel. (laughs) And bought with them, what are you gonna do with those 30 pieces of silver? They take them and they purchase a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Now what's going on here? In Jewish tradition, there's no, they would never cremate and there's, no waiting to get the body into the ground. You get the body in the ground as fast as possible in Jewish custom. So if someone had traveled, say, like, like this feast at Passover, for example, if a pilgrim had traveled to Jerusalem and they died, they were to be buried right there in Jerusalem right away. So you needed places to do that. So really, this is a, this is a public good. It's not a bad thing to purchase. That's actually a very generous thing to do. It's infrastructure. Because who's going to spend a lot of money on that, on people that you don't know? They're strangers. That's the whole point. And so it's kind of hard to raise money for that. So they say, well, here's a good use of that. And they do it. They they, they know the money is dirty. They figure we can't give it to God, so let's use it for the public good. Let's do a good deed with it. Judas recognizes he's complicit, so he takes it on himself. The chief priests recognize they're complicit, and so they pour it into public works. How did it work out? Well, therefore, Matthew tells us, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Notice how many times blood is in this passage. It reminds me, it goes all the way back to like Genesis, you know, Cain and Abel. Abel's blood cries out from the ground. You know, what what, what do you do with this blood guilt? Well, for them, a field of blood. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, uh, this is a quote from Zechariah. Jeremiah alludes to it, but because Jeremiah is more famous than Zechariah, Jeremiah gets the shout out, but it's a, it's, a, it's a mashup of Jeremiah and Zechariah. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. What Matthew is showing you, that's why I called this whole sermon series, the Gospel of Matthew, that it might be fulfilled. Over and over, Matthew is showing you this whole Jesus thing didn't come out of the blue. It came out of the blueprint. Every detail, a fulfillment of God's perfect plan and purpose. Here's my point. The chief priests try to bury their guilt in good public works. And it ends up, if you think about it, everybody from then on who pays, everybody who donates money to that to get one of those burial spots, you know, they're from out of town, they need a place to be buried, they pay, and now they're paying. Like, all these people have benefited from the illegal death of Jesus. It's like the web of complicity just grows and grows and multiplies. Let me see, let me, 
just so we're absolutely clear. Here's where not to go with your guilt, the Judas way. Bear it yourself. Here's another place that doesn't work. Bury it in good deeds. It's not going to work. It's just going to increase that web of evil and complicity to others. Burying it yourself won't work. Burying it in public good works won't work. And there's one last portrait. Some try to bear it themselves like Judas. It crushes them. Some try to cover it up with good deeds like the chief priests. Others use this one, technique, famously used by the Roman governor, Pilate. Let's jump back to verse 2 and then 11. I'll put them together since Matthew sandwiches Judas and the chief priests in between. Let's remind. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. And now, verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor. So just real quick, in case anybody needs a refresher, who's the governor of Rome? Who is this Pontius Pilate? Okay, remember, you got this country, Israel, being ruled by another country, being ruled by a massive empire. The big boss of that empire is named Caesar. Rome is a military occupier. And here's the thing. They let the chief priests kind of run the show there in Israel. Um, They used to actually have a puppet king. They since got rid of him. Uh, Do you remember him? He was wicked. Uh, 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 He's the one who tried to have little baby Jesus murdered. Remember him? Herod. Yeah. So so they they used to use those puppet kings. So eventually, Rome gets fed up with all these riots. They happen every year around Passover. So finally, they just ship an old Roman general out there to to rule Jerusalem with an iron fist. And the guy they send out there is Pontius Pilate. And by all my study of Pilate and all my reading of Scripture, here's what I think. I think Pilate is absolutely miserable. Pilate is a wicked man. He's, he's not good. He hated his job. He hated the Roman, uh, excuse me, he hated the Jewish people. He would just kill them. When there would be a big riot, he would just send out soldiers to just completely murder them. At once, one time, he would hang all these Galileans on crosses. He would use Roman crosses. Uh, uh, it was no problem for him. I think he was just miserable. He's wondering how he got to this backwoods part of the Roman Empire you know, nobody likes him. Apparently, they don't like him in Rome because he's been shipped pretty far out to this outpost of the Roman Empire. He's certainly not loved at all by the people that he's ruling. He's a military occupier. And, uh, and the only reason the chief priests are coming to him, they cozy up to Pilate because, remember, Pilate holds the card they need. Pilate can do capital punishment. They can't. So they know Pilate can... Get Jesus completely gone, so they think. So they trump up these charges that he's a terrorist, and Pilate's like, I don't really buy it. He keeps trying to, eh, I don't know. And then finally, the one that they think will stick is, he says he's a king. Now that, that's treasonous talk. He's a king. You know, Messiah, they're telling Pilate, Messiah means king. And if you say, oh yeah, there can be kings in Israel, then that means your king, Caesar, he's not gonna be too happy with that. And so you think you're in trouble now by being the governor of this place. You're going to get demoted even further. Pilate's thinking, how did I, how did I get here? What, like, what, what, what? This is terrible. But yeah, yeah, he's going to be a king. So they trump up those charges. They think they can get Pilate. They think they can get those charges to stick. The problem is when Pilate hears this trial, it's unlike any trial he's ever heard. Look at the rest of verse 11. So the governor asked him, can you imagine Jesus before Pilate? Pilate saying, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You've said so. That's a great answer. Uh, He's effectively allowing that charge to stick, but he's not, I think what he's saying when he says, you have said so, the emphasis there, you, as in, hey, we're talking both king of the Jews, but we're talking about two totally different things. You mean it 
in a way completely different than how I mean it. And so he's not willing to agree that he means it the same way. So he just says, brilliantly, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. See, a typical Roman hearing before a procurator would have involved these four things. First, the charges, then the governor's questions, then the prisoner's self-defense. The prisoner gets to answer these questions, right? Then a verdict. What's missing in this trial? Jesus won't say anything. And so Pilate's looking around like, hey, you, if you got something to say, now would be the time. And Pilate's almost encouraging him. Have you nothing to say? Pilate does not want to kill this guy. He does not want to deal with that headache. Pilate actually just wants grain. That's all Pilate cares about. Caesar has a big empire, and they eat a lot of carbs. And really, all he needs is for everybody to go back to his particular province is the breadbasket of Rome. If everybody will go back to this agricultural uh, uh, jobs and they'll keep the grain flowing, then I can ship this grain back to Rome. And everybody, if, just, if we could just get through Passover, instead, all this talk about king. So he encourages Jesus. Like, hey, if you've got something to say, say it now. Otherwise, like, this could mean you die. If you stay silent, you die. Doesn't say a word. Do you hear what they're saying? Now, the, the eternal Son of God, standing trial before men he created. Does that scene not touch your heart? Don't you have anything to say to you? They're they're saying you're a terrorist, you're going to blow up, you're going to kill, you're going to hurt, you're going to destroy. The governor was greatly amazed. He knows this guy's no threat. He was amazed. You say, oh, he was amazed because he was used to the Roman customs of how they did trials. No, he was amazed because he knows how human beings work. When was the last time you were falsely accused and you just said nothing? I'm just going to let him think I'm wicked. You don't do that. I don't do that. Nobody does that. Let me do you jump on a text message? How fast do you blow up social media? How fast do you make everybody know what's being said about you is not true? You're here to set the record straight. Have you ever met a human that's like, eh. Pilate can't believe it. Jesus is letting these charges stick. Does anybody else think of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that has led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Who does this? Most of us rush in to defend ourselves when we're falsely accused, and yet Jesus kept quiet. Why? He allowed himself at this point to become answerable. He was quiet to become answerable for our guilt. Think about that for a second. Had he defended himself, and could he, let me ask you, could he have defended himself? When they said to him, you're, 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 you're destroying people and you're killing people and you're a threat, you tell me the witnesses that could have lined up out the door. Okay, first witness, it's some lepers I healed. Is this true what they said about Jesus? Are you kidding me? Not only did Jesus not destroy us, he saved our life, he's a healer. Next, next comes in the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus saved my life. You guys think he's taken down life. He actually raises life. And then walks in Jairus with his 12-year-old little girl. The little girl's like, give me the mic. She gets on the mic, and she's like, all y'all say, 
that Jesus is coming to take living things and make them dead. I am here to tell you that, in fact, he did the opposite. I was a dead 12-year-old girl, and he came, took me by the hand, and said, little girl, get up. Which, Dad, I don't even wake up when Dad calls me for school, little girl, wake up. But Jesus has so much power, he woke me up from the dead. And I'm here to tell you that uh, Jesus, in fact, is not here to destroy. He's here to make come alive. And everybody's clapping and cheering. Are you done? No, I'm not done. Mr. Lazarus, please come to the microphone, please. Lazarus walks up. Yeah, basically what she said. Uh, you know, I was dead. Now I'm in the list goes on and on and on. He's not a killer. He's a healer. He, does everybody understand? He could have absolutely at that moment crushed that trial with truth, walked out a free man. And if he did, you and I would have been lost. As one theologian said, I wrote this down, Christ kept silence then to be our spokesman now. When the old devil accuses, when he says, what about you? And what about this person? And they call themselves a follower of Jesus. They have no business. No, 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 no. We have an advocate before the throne of God. Jesus Christ, the merciful, he speaks for us because he remained silent then. Well, we've got to close out this third portrait. Pilate is cruel, but he's not stupid. He knows he's not dealing with a terrorist. He knows this Bible teacher is no threat to his kingdom. He really doesn't want to waste any more time on this, but he's a coward. And he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to upset the chief priests and the Sanhedrin. He needs them to influence the people and just get through another Passover. And then it hits him once a year. Oh, I got it. Once a year, he releases a political prisoner. So he can use his get out of political prison free card on Jesus and everybody. And he'll look like a hero. This is win-win. He's such a people pleaser, such a coward. Now at the feast, this is verse 15, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And, when, and, oh, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they'd gathered, Pilate said to them, and he knows they're going to pick Jesus, surely, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas, or Jesus, who's called the Christ? He's throwing him a bone. You're, you're Messiah, right? Because he knew, verse 18, he knew he was innocent. He knew Jesus was innocent, for he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And no matter how evil a Roman governor you are, you can't get in the business of knowingly murder these innocent people and on top of that, oh, on top of all that, God even tries to speak to Pilate through his wife. Sometimes when God can't get your attention any other way, he will speak to you guys through your wife. That's probably a sermon for another day. I'm not going to go there right now. But verse 19, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, so while he has the power to decide one way or another, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. There's only three people in Matthew that God speaks to through dreams. Joseph, here's what to do about the whole Mary situation. The wise men, don't go back to Herod. Pilate's wife, God speaking. Pilate ignores. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Uh, Governor Pilate can't believe it. Wait, what? What? The governor again said to him, I'm, I'm sorry, wh wh which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what, what? Then what shall I do with Jesus who's called Messiah? They all said, yeah, let him be crucified. He said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Pilate's thinking, man, I just, I, I don't want to be here. I don't want to, I just want to, I want to be on the Mediterranean. How did I get here? So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, at the end of the day, Pilate just loves Pilate. 
He took water. Can you imagine? Visual aid time. Takes a big bowl of water. Washes his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Where, where, where have we heard that before? Not my problem. See to it yourself. That's the exact same quote the priest gave to Judas. Your problem. All the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Everybody see? How does Pilate deal with his guilt? Judas tried to bear the guilt, see to it himself. The chief priests and elders tried to bury the guilt under a bunch of good deeds. And Pilate tries to deal with his guilt by blaming others. This is y'all's problem. I'm innocent. I'm literally about to sign the death warrant and have an innocent person killed, and I'm the only person that can prevent it, but I'm innocent. You see the hypocrisy here. I'm blaming others. All through Jesus' ministry, he pointed this out. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, it's so easy to see the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. This is speck log stuff right here. Pilate is washing his hands saying, I'm completely innocent of this. This, is, this must be y'all's problem. How many of us deal with guilt? The first thing we do when dealing with guilt is we look for everybody else to blame. And we think that'll take our guilt away. That doesn't take Pilate's guilt away. Yeah, but well, preacher, if you knew, if you knew what, what, what they did, if you knew what she did, my, my, my parents, preacher, you, you don't understand. My, my ex, if you could meet my ex, then you'd understand. I am not saying that folks have not hurt you. And I'm not saying that folks did wrong by you. What I'm saying is it's awfully easy to look at their side of the street and miss your side of the street. You can't read the label when you're inside the jar. And when you're covered in this sin, it's very easy to go, but what about them and what about them? And that's what Pilate does. He's washing his hands. This is disgusting. He's, think about this. He's, the very moment he washes his hands is what, what's he saying effectively? I'm washing my hands. I'm done with it. Y'all kill him if you want. I'm innocent. The very act of declaring his innocence is his moment of guilt and culpability. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> because he's standing before the one, there's only one innocent man in this whole story. Look at all this blood and all this washing. It reminds me of Lady Macbeth, right? Trying to wash it away. Pilate's trying to wash it away. The only innocent man is Jesus and he's right there. And Pilate has the audacity to be like, I'm the innocent man here. I'm the victim. Jesus is like, well, I... utterly misses what's right there. Judas wonders, what can wash away my sin? He tries to bear it himself. The chief priests wonder, how do you deal with sin? They try to bury it in good deeds. And Pilate wonders, how do you deal with sin? Maybe I can wipe it off by blaming others. And still this separation remains. Brandon's gonna come and lead us in a time of response. Before you close your Bibles, will you look at verse 45? You know how this goes. They mocked Jesus. They spit on him. They whipped him. They led him out to be crucified on Calvary's hill. Being too weak to carry his own cross, they conscript Simon of Cyrene. Even the crowds mock him and those who were crucified with him. And verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's Jesus. He's loved God with all his heart. He's loved others. And now what's he doing? He's drinking the cup of God's wrath that he agonized over in the garden of Gethsemane. He's now drinking it all the way in full. 
What was he doing? He was allowing himself to be cut off from God the Father so that you never would be. He was bearing our guilt for us and our salvation so that you don't have to bear it anymore. He was crying out with this, with this loud cry. Look at verse 47. Of course, he's been misunderstood his whole ministry. Why should it be any different on the cross? People still misunderstand him. Some of the bystanders heard that Eli, Eli, and thought this man's calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink. The other said, wait, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. But he was on the Father's timetable. He knew what he was doing. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We know that one of those cries he cried out was, it is finished. That means paid in full. No amount of good deeds can bury it. But the blood of the sinless, spotless Lamb of God can cover in full every one of your sins. See? And to blame others, he allowed himself. No, no, no. no, It's a dead end to try to blame others. Instead, he allowed himself to bear that blame for us and our salvation. If Jesus paid it all, then you don't have to. If you try to pay for your salvation, it means you don't think he paid it all. There is no middle ground between those two propositions, Ray Pritchard says. And to prove that the sacrificial death of Jesus in our place and for our salvation paid it all, look at verse 51, and behold, look, Judas tried to bear his sin guilt and the separation with God remains. The chief priests tried to bury their guilt and the separation from God remained. Pilate tried to blame others for his guilt and the separation from God remains. But when the sinless, spotless Lamb of God stretched out his arms and died on that cross, watch what happened. When Christ's perfect sacrifice once for all was made, look what happens to the separation from God. And behold, the curtain of the temple. What's going on with the temple? Matthew's told us a whole lot about this temple. Temple's a place where people meet with God. Once a year, the high priest could go in after the sacrifice was made and, and be in the Holy of Holies. But that place was signified as a separation. And that, that curtain temple, that veil separated humans from God. And the curtain of the temple was torn. How? It was ripped in half. How? From bottom to top? No, 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 no. From top to bottom. Why is that significant? Humans would tear this temple. If we tried to tear that temple, we would start where only we could start. I mean, it goes up all so many feet high. If we were to tear it, we would reach at the bottom and we would begin to try to tear. And many people have tried to tear away at that separation from God. They've got guilt. It's like I'm talking right to them today and they're trying to cover it up with their good deeds. And if they could rip that separation just a little bit, they, they would. They can't, but they think they can with just enough good deeds. Or if I bear it in myself or if I, if I, if I try to blame others, we're all trying to rip that. And even if the best of us, even if we could rip it for a few inches we could only get so far and the separation from God remains but this this shows us the separation was torn in two from top to bottom as if to say no mortal hand can separate can undo the separation between God and man this was the hand of God from heaven reaching down in the personal work of Jesus he can tear apart whatever separates you and God today do you hear me Don't bear your guilt anymore. Go to Jesus. Go to him. Don't don't walk in condemnation, Christian. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is one place you can go with your guilt. You can't bear it. It'll crush you. You you can't bear it in good deeds. You can't blame others. You've got to stop with this blaming others. But there is one who will receive you. He loves you. He will receive you. I try to think about how to close this message and 
Paul was reflecting on this and he says, look, he, he, he died for sinners. In Romans chapter five, he says this, you look, occasionally, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He makes the point that, that it is possible. Verse 7, it is possible. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though I, He allows, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Go to him. He will receive you. He loves you. Let's pray together. Oh God, grant to us relief from guilt and condemnation. It doesn't, it's not going to come by us bearing it ourselves. It's not going to come by us trying to bury it in good deeds or blame others. We've got to come straight to you, Lord Jesus, to make right, to make confession, to be true. Lord, we ask you to grant that to us today. Grant that we would love you more. Grant us a deeper appreciation of what you paid for us and what you that ransom that was offered for us in our salvation on Calvary's cross. Grant that to us today. And grant, Lord, with a heart of faith and hope in what happens just three days after this crucifixion, Lord, that grant us hope in the risen Son of God that you rose from that grave and in that resurrection carried our justification, a right standing before God the Father. Grant that we would put our hope and our faith and our trust in that, that you are risen from the dead and you stand ready to receive sinners, to love, and to welcome back. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.